Welcome to Sagittarius Eye, issue 29, October 3306, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial One of the longest standing mysteries of spacefaring times, and probably also one of the best known, has at this point endured for centuries. A long-time reader can probably guess which mystery we are discussing, that of Raxler and the Dark Wheel. There are plenty who believe that Raxler is merely a fairy story, something parents tell to their children when they want them to grow up to be pilots. Such scepticism is with good reason. Despite innumerable rumours, the existence of so many permit-locked systems, and with everything else that surrounds this mystery, the hard evidence that Raxler exists whatever Raxler may be, is approximately nil. And there the story has rested for some time. Interest in this mystery, aside from random speculation, has been at an all-time low for the last 30 years, at least until recently. On the other hand, the Dark Wheel does appear to exist, and not only that, seems to be on the move. In this issue, we take a first look at what this might mean. For not promising to solve any mysteries, we shed light on the very sudden expansion of this shadowy organisation. We also take another look at a different mystery, that of Lalande 28607. This mystery is most definitely grounded in science and evidence-based theories. When this star was first observed, its age was calculated to be older than the known universe, which, given prevailing theories, presented some difficulty to astronomers. We now know much more about this star today, and this month's article hopes to enlighten our listeners on this unusual star, a body that today is easy to visit in most starships. If this gives you the urge to go out and visit Lalande 28607, why not do it in Saud Cruder's Dolphin? We examine this ship, which, as it turns out, has become a favourite for at least a few explorers on account of its surprising versatility. Finally, one of the most immediate and practical mysteries that confronts a new Pilots' Federation member is what to install in their ship's hardpoints. With a dizzying variety of weapons that can be fitted to a ship, it's easy to load out your ship in a way that's going to get you an unpleasant ride in a Remlock suit, and only a few ways of ensuring your ship can be, to go back to an older spacefarer's term, the iron ass that it deserves to be. Our first article in this new series on hardpoints will cover lasers and how you can make them work for you. So there we have it, a discussion of three mysteries and a ship to discover at least some of the secrets. We are betting that, despite our best efforts, at least one of the mysteries will not be solved for some time to come. Spokes of the Wheel There is scarcely a person across the entirety of human space who hasn't heard of the Dark Wheel. This enigmatic group has been the stuff of rumors, gossip, and conspiracy theory for generations. Solid information is nearly impossible to come by, and the only thing that can be said with confidence is that the Dark Wheel does exist. But mere existence does not a satisfying story make. 
and so this humble correspondent has taken it upon himself to present a few more verifiable details. It is no secret that unrestricted anonymous communication is a breeding ground for all manner of falsehoods and nonsense. Echo chambers form nearly overnight, and facts fade in the face of what one merely wishes were true. Hence, delving into any public discussion of the dark wheel is futile. One is soon inundated with unhinged speculation and wild assumption. Extrapolated over thousands of local networks, the task of sifting through decades of such assertions is hardly an enviable task, even with the aid of automated retrieval software. Thus does it seem appropriate to begin with the elephant in the room. The open presence of an organization called the Dark Wheel in the much-storied system of Shinrata Desra. Of course, even this simple statement is itself awash with controversy. Opinion as to their legitimacy is firmly divided, with many pointing out that no secret organization would operate so openly. And indeed, this is a solid point on the face of it. There are others, however, who take the opposite view. For them, the fact that the Pilots' Federation has allowed the Dark Wheel to thrive in such a sacred space is evidence enough of its legitimacy. And thrive they have. After years of containing itself to Shinrata Desra, the Dark Wheel has expanded out from its iconic home. As of this writing, the faction now controls the neighboring systems of LFT-926, HR-4979, LTT-5455, and in Yanwu. They further have a presence in Tour de Tani and, as previously mentioned, Shinrata Desra. All of this seems to imply an active agenda, though their endgame is far from clear. If, and it is a great if, the Dark Wheel's ultimate goal is to openly establish itself throughout the core, this would be a remarkable evolution in its methods. One of the only consistent and plausible rumors about the organization involves its approach to recruitment. It's said that one cannot seek them out. One must instead be approached for membership. The candidate in question may not even know for whom they truly work until later, when they have earned a measure of trust. Even then, membership within the wheel is very much a compartmentalized experience with various tiers of involvement leading, presumably, to some sort of inner circle, the membership of which is a closely kept secret. Then there's the question of why? Why does the Dark Wheel exist? What is its mandate? Rumors place the establishment of the Dark Wheel sometime in the 22nd century, coinciding with the advent of hyperspace travel. It is here that speculation rises to a fever pitch. Are they explorers? Keepers of arcane knowledge? Secret puppet masters? What we can be certain of is the Dark Wheel exists and has had a hand in shaping modern events. The most recent and strongest evidence of their activity is the saga of the late Lady Kahina Loren. Though that story has been told elsewhere, it is worth remembering that her ship, the Seven Veils, was found with an emblem bearing the Dark Wheel's crest upon it. Whether the presence of the emblem was a rejection of the Dark Wheel or a declaration of her involvement is anyone's guess. What seems certain, however, is that such a figure wouldn't have been duped by imposters. So, what is the Dark Wheel's agenda? 
Who are its allies? Its enemies? Is it a rogue organization or one that governs from the shadows? Is the Dark Wheel of Shinrata Desra the real Dark Wheel? Or is this organization merely a front? Who is behind its rise? As ever, the questions far outnumber the answers, and what little credible information exists is a trickle lost amid the storm. Even in 3306, to gaze upon a starfield is to be reminded of one's smallness in the infinite void. Our own galaxy, so largely unexplored, is itself merely one of billions. It is in these contemplations that one is compelled to make peace with one's own insignificance. It is unlikely that the full truth of the Dark Wheel will be known in a dozen lifetimes, just as it is unlikely that mankind will ever truly make this galaxy its own. It's oddly reassuring, though, to remind oneself that even if there is an overworld of secret cabals vying for control over our collective fate, that such designs are ultimately grains of sand upon the endless shore, to be washed away by the inevitable forces of entropy that await all known existence. But for now, the wheel will turn. The Secret of Laland 28607 If someone were to ask about the Bubbles Must See systems, they'd hear any number of names. Saul, Akana, Alios, Kubio, maybe even Aldebaran, Jackson's Lighthouse, or Arcturus. Perhaps even the elusive Shinrata Desra. And these certainly are all excellent places to explore. But it's unlikely that anyone would mention Lalonde 28607, and that is a shame. In the early days of modern astronomy, Lalonde 28607 was also known as the Methuselah star, because it was determined to be older than the universe itself, which led to much speculation among astronomers, who still had to cope with quantum physics and black holes, the existence of quasars, and all the mysteries of an ever-expanding universe. Lalonde 28607 was first noticed in the late 19th century, when scientists began using astrophotography to chart the movement of stars. When they compared photos, they spotted a star in the constellation Libra that moved very fast, roughly twice the speed of Sol, 1.3 million kilometers an hour. Even more surprising, it did so in a highly elliptical orbit and against the rotational movement of the Milky Way. By all accounts, it seemed this star would eventually leave the galaxy's disk altogether, which was an unsettling observation at that time when many astronomers still believed that nothing lay beyond the Milky Way. This star, scientists eventually determined, was the same star filed under entry 28607 in the mid-19th century catalogue of French astronomer Jérôme Lalonde, hence its designation. Lalonde 28607. It was labelled an ordinary middle-aged star with no significant characteristics, shining with a somewhat yellow light. Interest in the star quickly grew, however, as astronomers adopted new scientific methods. One of these was spectroscopy, which made it possible to analyse a star's light spectrum, 
thereby deducing its material composition, its luminosity and, through a complex set of equations, its age and approximate distance from the observer. What they discovered puzzled them. The star was made up almost entirely of hydrogen and helium. Where common stars had other elements in their mix such as oxygen, magnesium, neon or iron, Lalonde had almost none of these other elements present. Astronomers refer to this as exceedingly low metallicity. The term metal may be misleading, however, because it is not used in this way in other sciences. To an astronomer, metal means any element heavier than hydrogen or helium. This low metallicity contrasted dramatically with what scientists had expected from their observations of other stars. Immediately after the Big Bang, the universe consisted only of hydrogen and helium, plus a tiny amount of lithium. There were no heavier elements present until they were fused by the first stars and then released in the heat of the first supernovae, after a few million years. So a star with barely no elements besides hydrogen and helium would have to be very old, dating back to the time before heavier elements were present in the universe. Indeed, these metal-poor stars are called Population II stars, in contrast with newer generations of metal-rich stars which are called Population I. This classification was made in 1944, before the relationship with age was properly understood, meaning that first-generation stars older than Population II had to be fitted in later on as Population III. When scientists had pieced together their equations with what they thought they knew, they attempted to calculate Lalonde's age. The first results were troubling. Lalonde was estimated to be 16 billion years old. That would have made it older than the universe itself, which was then thought to be 12 billion years old. How was that possible? There are a number of partial explanations and it was not until the early 21st century that astronomers were in a position to combine them all. First of all, Lalonde is a so-called field star. That means it's not a member of a star cluster. Star clusters are born at the same time in the same environment, so all their stars have roughly the same age. Since Lalonde was a loner, however, it couldn't have the same age as other stars of, say, the Pleiades, the Arcturus system, the Hyades, or other well-researched star clusters. Secondly, one must consider the exotic trajectory of Lalonde. Today we know it as an extragalactic halo star, much like Arcturus. It originated in a long-defunct dwarf galaxy that was absorbed by the Milky Way in the distant past. The collision violently flung Lalonde out of its regular environment and into a highly elliptical orbit. It will pass through the Milky Way and eventually vanish again into the galaxy's halo tens of thousands of light years away, presumably in the globular cluster Messier 92, of which it is thought to be a member. Speaking of Lalonde's age, it is also important to understand how ancient scientists determined a star's age. Astronomers in pre-spaceflight times didn't have much more than a telescope and a small array of tools at their disposal. By measuring a star's absolute luminosity and temperature through spectroscopy, the star's distance could be calculated by comparison with its observed brightness back on Earth and its age by comparison with other stars and with models of stellar evolution. This is how they arrived at the age of 16 billion years. But there's a problem. 
At that time, stellar processes were only poorly understood. Stellar nucleosynthesis, the process of fusing one element into another inside a star, was a relatively new concept introduced by British astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle in the 1950s, but still in its infancy. This led to a partly erroneous modelling of stellar luminosity and temperature, and hence to age and distance inaccuracies. As the theory of stellar evolution became more refined, however, the complex mechanics of hydrogen and helium fusion became better understood. This allowed scientists to calculate a more precise age for Lalonde, which was then estimated to be roughly 14 billion years. This definitely helped ease some minds in the scientific community. However, there were other factors at play, one of which was the actual age of the universe, which of course lay at the base of all comparison. This proved to be a stony road because throughout the 17th and up until the early 20th century, most astronomers thought the universe had no age because it had no beginning. This meant a star 16 billion or in one case even 25 billion years old was not a problem at all. This model was challenged in the early 20th century when redshift observations by astronomers including Vesto Slipher, Carl Wilhelm Wurtz and most famously Edwin Hubble established that the universe was in fact not static but in a state of continuous expansion. The question then became whether the expanding universe had no beginning and was kept in a steady state by the continuous creation of matter, a theory championed by Sir Fred Hoyle amongst others, or had an origin dubbed the Big Bang by Hoyle, and thus a finite age. This was the subject of much debate during the second half of the 20th century, but in the end mounting evidence for the Big Bang theory, including the legendary first survey of the cosmic microwave background, won all skeptics over. As time passed, techniques for gathering data on cosmological scales and thus the age of the universe were refined considerably. Scientists eventually arrived at a figure that is now believed to be as accurate as it gets. 13.789 billion years. But even then, you have a plus or minus of 20 million years, so the universe could be as old as 13.809 billion years, which could finally make the estimates for the age of Lalonde 28607, now in the range of 13.66 to 15.26 billion years, reconcilable. What does this mean for the Methuselah star, though? In the end, improvements in both stellar age determination and modelling the universe's age have turned Lalonde 28607 from an impossible star into an exotic time traveller that must have formed when the universe was still very young. For mankind, this turned out to be a stroke of luck. Lalonde is a mere 190 light-years from Sol, which means it could be very well explored over time. Today, 30 million people make the system their home, and a high-tech industry has settled there. Whatever the case, the Methuselah star is an exciting place to visit. You have the opportunity to step back in time to its very beginning, shortly after the first gargantuan stars formed out of primordial clouds, before they exploded and seeded the universe with all the elements we see today. In addition, it's a walk through the different stages of astronomical observation techniques that were refined through the centuries until mankind was able to build a spaceport in that very ancient star system. 
Walking on Lalonde 28607's planets is literally going back to square one to the universe's beginning. So, tread carefully, commanders. A hard look at hard points. Lasers. If you want to sink your teeth into some prey, or prevent yourself from being among them, be they NPC pirates, mission targets, other commanders, or innocent ships scattered across the bubble, you're going to need some gear. Serious gear. Cutthroat, high-power, heavy-duty, bloodthirsty weapons of the highest caliber. This raises some questions, such as, what are the best weapons? Why? Will they work for your style and ship of choice? Over the next few issues, we'll be taking a long and hard look at what exactly is in stock. As a note, we won't be covering power play in Guardian modules. Let's begin with directed energy weapons. Pure rays of light and thermal energy. First of all, we'll assume every weapon is fixed. Just note that gimbaled lasers of all types deal about 76% of the standard damage per second of their fixed counterparts, and nearly 9% higher distributor draw and slightly higher thermal load. Many combat specialists prefer the challenge of lining up every shot with fixed weapons, granting them an edge in firepower. Although lasers are most commonly used to drain enemy shields before bringing some other weapon type to bear on a bare hull, they can also be used with a regenerative sequence modification to regenerate a wingman's shields by directing energy into their shield capacity rather than overloading it. However, that modification also causes 10% less damage to foes, so let's forgo the idea of working with allies for our purposes. You're a lone ranger, an intrepid explorer, or even a timid cargo runner with no support. You need the best that you can make do with in the event that you get into a conflict or even start a few of your own. Your first question should probably be beam, burst, or pulse lasers. The very core of any energy weapon is its firing mode. Beam lasers fire continuously with a very high intensity until their capacitors are depleted. They generate the most heat and suck up the most power, unloading it into a target non-stop. Class 2 on a fixed mount can do 15.96 DPS at 3.16 megawatts, heating up their host ship at 5.11 units per second. They are hungry beasts, more suitable for larger ships that fight at a distance to counteract their slower turning speed, and are able to fire for as long as their hefty banks and heat capacitors will allow. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, Smaller ships that can consistently keep their targets in sight and devote nearly all of their resources to expending heat from beam lasers can do some serious work to carve their names into hulls. On a ship like the Mamba, combining the long-range modification with the flow control effect can double your range for only a 3.5% higher power draw. Paired with some heat sinks and long-distance missile racks, a commander can snipe their foe from afar. Or, if you want to get up close and personal, swarming your enemy with lock-on torpedoes and circling around them like a real hunter, having a weapon-focused power distributor with a cluster capacitors effect can allow you to overwhelm enemy shields easily using an array of overcharged beams, each one of the reticules on the ship that is begging for your mercy. If you can eject heat sinks faster than a spilled bio-waste, then this all-or-nothing variant is for you. 
Up next on our list of killing machines are burst lasers. They fire intermittently, but consistently, with three blasts for every shot. The Class II fixed variant of the module can do 13 DPS for only half a megawatt with every shot. They do noticeably less damage than beam lasers, but they draw less power and produce only 15% as much heat. Unmodified, they are an excellent in-between for defensive purposes, or for ships where module space is limited. But we're not here for stock capability. If you're the kind of commander who knows your way around the shadows of an asteroid belt, or wants to convince your prey to jettison their cargo faster than they can say mercy, here's a crippling combination. The rapid fire modification with a scramble spectrum effect. With a bit of tinkering, you can reduce power draw by a staggering 35% for a 41% higher fire rate, overall increasing DPS by 74%. But wait, there's more. The aforementioned experimental effect can potentially trigger random module malfunctions on the target when striking bare hull, which can render systems useless or even have them work towards your advantage. These two upgrades do produce a bit of jitter on gimbaled weapons, but for a barrage of lasers with rapid fire at medium to close range, that jitter is nearly inconsequential. A small ship with few large hardpoints would benefit from these, as the effect does not stack. Even better, targets with chaff launchers may spew chaff along their hull, dispersing the lasers further, allowing even more modules to potentially be scrambled, and making escape near impossible. Any decently equipped and experienced pilot can escape a fight, but jumping away becomes difficult if the power plant suddenly malfunctions, or thrusters misfire or extinguish entirely. If you're a bit more of a traditional breed of commander, you may be more concerned with keeping your own hull from melting. Or perhaps you don't want to wait for your enemy's shields to fall before you start wreaking havoc. Beam or burst lasers with short-range blaster or overcharged plus the thermal vent effect can be a metal-melting choice. The effect is directly proportional to distributor draw, making enemy shields or hull soak up your heat. This combination is especially effective on hot-running ships cooking them from the inside out. If timed properly with shield cell bank usage, the effect can almost be self-invigorating and reduces the need for a heat sink launcher where a shield booster or other defensive module could be fitted instead. Gimbaled weapons are recommended with this combination, as mist bursts will quickly heat up your own ship instead. Hot-running weapons like plasma accelerators or railguns, in tandem with lasers enhanced with a thermal vent effect, can vaporize even the coldest running vessels. One might assume that pulse lasers are the weakling of the trio. But the intermittent fire rate, decreased heat output, and low power draw together result in a very desirable weapon that can pew-pew for an exceptionally long time if used surgically, and one that is also reminiscent of the classic holovids of Old Earth. On smaller ships or sluggish transporters, Class II pulse lasers yield 12 DPS, only producing 0.56 units of heat per second, while using only half a megawatt for every shot and 60% of the power that burst laser uses. For small fighters or medium frigates where shield strength and available power are at a premium, these can be a decent deterrent to attackers, typically with grade 4 to 5 overcharged weapons plus the flow control effect. In addition, pulse lasers have another trick up their sleeve. They can light up targets like Christmas trees. Suppose you're up against another commander who's also read guides and articles like this one and lurks in the shadows of asteroids and large vessels waiting for prey to stock upon. 
They rely on their cool running ship emitting a low thermal signature that sensors won't pick them up until it's too late. Unless you decide to turn the tables on them. The emissive munitions effect surrounds the target in high energy particles, which sounds fairly useless until your wingmates pick up on the signal and hone in on your supposedly silent but deadly attacker. Alternatively, you can train every single one of your lock-on weapons on them, launching massive, deadly bursts of ammunition to their practically glowing hull, leaving them only a few moments to regret their sneaky strategy before their end arrives at blistering velocity. A bit of targeting and some high precision can leave a would-be pirate ship dead in space. Also, the efficient modification does about 24% more damage for nearly half the distributor and reactor draw. With the right loadout or situation, the effect can be astonishing. To conclude our first hard look at hardpoints, every type of laser has its own specialties, which should be combined with complementary modules and weapons to be very effective. Ultimately, the form of a fight always comes down to combat skill, preferences, and situational awareness, but every one of these combinations has its strengths and weaknesses. Hopefully, this guide provides more context into the differences and uses of them. Some experimental effects should be avoided in most cases, while others can turn the tide in a battle. Be you a solitary assassin, one among a wolf pack of low-temperature diamond pirates, or just a trade ship who wants some more bite to go with your bark. A loadout with lasers that complements your style and situation exists, so head for the nearest starbase and get to work. Small Luxuries in Deep Space, The Dolphin. Uncoupling sequence complete. You may leave when ready. Sometimes, a ship is simply overlooked. Maybe it was a bit of a flop when the manufacturer first launched the type, and perhaps the reputation sticks, despite the initial flaws being rectified. Saud Kruger's diminutive dolphin falls into this category, and in this article we explore why this might be, and why you really shouldn't miss out on this surprisingly versatile little vessel. The dolphin was released to relatively little fanfare on April 11, 3303. Like all the other cetacean-themed Saud Kruger ships, it squarely aimed at the passenger market somewhat resembling a bus, but with the trademark fishtail design language of which Saud Kruger is so fond. Of the three now in the series, the Dolphin, the Orca, and the Beluga Liner, the Dolphin is the smallest, fitting neatly on a small pad. Like its larger siblings though, it had a notable drawback. Many of its internal bays could only be used for passenger cabins or cargo racks, this limitation somewhat reducing the ship's usefulness. Saud Kruger's engineers would of course argue with anyone who cared to listen that this should not be considered a drawback. The Dolphin, like the others, was squarely aimed at the Space Lines market, so who cares that its only size 5 bay can take a passenger cabin or cargo rack, but not a fuel scoop. It wasn't marketed as a combat ship, nor a trader, nor an explorer, nor any other role you care to think of. After all, you wouldn't go into battle on one of the buses that move passengers from the terminal to the hab rings of a station, would you? So there the matter rested. The ship was taken up by the space lines and a few independents, and that was that. While in theory you could equip it as a small cargo hauler, 
the pathetic firepower that the dolphin can muster from its two small hard points tended to discourage that activity, except on the very safest of safe trade routes. However, it turned out that this matter wasn't settled, not by a long shot. While the dolphin was finding use in its intended role, the Pilots' Federation membership was not particularly enthused by it, despite its good looks, relatively low price, and, it has to be said, decent money-making opportunities in the passenger charter business, especially for newer pilots who hadn't yet built up a lot of assets. A year and a half after the ship's release, on December 11, 3304, Saud Kruger released a refreshed version of the Dolphin, which de-restricted all of the ship's internal bays. Existing owners didn't miss out. The modification was also made to ships already in service. Coinciding with this was the installation of a discovery scanner, which no longer took up an internal bay, but was now integral to the ship. It is no exaggeration to say that this was a game changer. Unfortunately, few Pilots Federation members really noticed, which was probably a good thing for Lacon, because it suddenly made the Dolphin arguably a better exploration ship than Lacon's small pad exploration offering, the Diamondback Explorer, or DBX. To give you an idea of what this change meant, the Dolphin, which has always had a decent jump range, being able to manage 35 light years without engineering, went from being unable to equip for exploration particularly well due to limited slots and a slow fuel scoop to having enough slots to simultaneously be a fuel rat and hole seal with the fuel scoop that would fill the tanks in just 27 seconds, all without missing out on an SRV hangar and a Guardian Frame shift drive booster. The latter brings its jump range to almost exactly that of a DBX fitted for ratting and sealing, yet with a fuel scoop over three times as fast as the best that the Diamondback can carry. As if that wasn't enough to make Lacon nervous, early in 3306, the Saud Kruger engineers made yet another improvement to the Dolphin, this time to its heat management. Not only can the Dolphin refuel from empty in less than 30 seconds, with very little engineering, its cooling system begins good enough to refuel at a star's exclusion zone and charge its frame shift drive without exceeding 56% heat. This very rare ability, combined with its now excellent internal module space, really makes the Dolphin stand out. Of course, Diamondback adherents will point out that their ship has a bigger fuel tank and cannot just go further without needing to refuel, but be a more effective fuel rat ship. But at least this writer would argue that this isn't as big an advantage as it looks, unless you're being a fuel rat for a thirsty anaconda that's stuck 150 light years from the nearest scoopable star. So now we see that with these improvements, the Dolphin is indeed a much more versatile ship and certainly a competent explorer. But what is it really like to fly? This correspondent has put the Dolphin through its paces, taking it on two back-to-back -back expeditions, starting with the Orion Expedition, which wended its way around the western side of our galaxy, ending up at Explorer's Anchorage near Sagittarius A star. The follow-up expedition, Eastern Promise, went out to the furthest reaches of the eastern side of the galaxy, testing the dolphin's endurance, the maximum, in the very sparse region known as Tenebri. The expedition visited the easternmost reachable star, 
Oudflow ZJ-ID9-0, whose informal name, Magellan Star, is rather easier to pronounce and remember. The total distance covered by both expeditions was a little over 200 and 26,000 light years and involved all the flight regimes you may care to name, landing on high G planets, exploring notable stellar phenomena, visiting distant bodies requiring a supercruise of hundreds of thousands of light seconds, and of course, the inevitable use of neutron star boosts. It's fair to say that the dolphin in question, named Pimpernel Petroleum, in a nod to an ancient Scottish poem about a bold, bad bus was put through her paces. But unlike her namesake, her passengers were not sitting with their fingers in their ears. First, supercruise handling. This is surprisingly high up on the list for explorers, despite the common misconception that they only care about maximizing jump range. In reality, supercruise handling is also highly valued. One of the big drawbacks of large exploration ships, such as the Anaconda, is their truly appalling supercruise handling. Incredibly slow yaw, pitch and roll rates which make the ship feel like a slug on onion head. Given that many explorers spend a lot of time in supercruise, often maneuvering, many who focus exclusively on jump range often come to regret it. Those who chose a dolphin for exploration, though, will not be disappointed with its supercruise performance. Like most small ships, it's nimble and responsive. You're not left wondering if you're going to avoid smashing into the exclusion zone of a neutron star as you approach far too fast, then desperately haul back on the stick. The ship responds quickly, winning the confidence of the owner. There is one drawback to this nimble handling. When entering the jet cone of a neutron star, the dolphin is tossed around significantly more than the larger exploration ships, and this rider more than once found himself turned right the way around to face the neutron star itself. Given the catastrophic consequences of hitting the exclusion zone while in the neutron star's jet cone, this is guaranteed to get the heart racing. To avoid the risk of an untimely annihilation, it's best to avoid jet cone boosting from white dwarfs altogether due to their small jet cones and large exclusion zones, and to enter the jet cone of neutron stars at a good, safe distance from the star's exclusion zone. Next, normal space handling. Again, like many small ships, the Dolphin performs reasonably well, and when kitted out for exploration is one of the better handling ships you might want to take out to Beagle Point. With just the lightest of thruster engineering, dirty drives grade one or two, you can also pep up the performance without incurring too much power draw penalty. On both the Orion Expedition and Eastern Promise, a popular activity was the Canyon Cruise, which is where all the assembled members of the expedition fly through a suitably breathtaking canyon in formation. The Dolphin made an excellent photography platform for this activity, its decent normal space handling serving it well for this role, especially with flight assist off. The ship could effortlessly glide from side to side across the formation, showing off not only the sights of the expedition, but also its own agility. Similarly, the Dolphin made an excellent flight assist off camera platform when filming SRV events. Quick to respond to thruster inputs, the ship could perfectly track a group of SRVs speeding across a planet's surface or tumbling down a canyon wall. The main drawback of the Dolphin for these sorts of activities, though, is that it's not really possible to equip particularly tough shields, at least not without trading off the rather good fuel scoop for a smaller one. 
Mistakes are inevitable, especially while flying backwards when filming a canyon run, and sometimes the ground will rise up and smite you. On too many occasions for comfort, this resulted in the rather weak shields going offline and some hole damage. Fortunately, with a repaired limpet controller, it could repair itself even if no other expedition member nearby was so equipped. The small hole needs little attention. One limpet will usually do the job. All in all, Saud Kruger has clearly made a winner, albeit an accidental one, in the exploration department. What about this ship's original design role? A ship made to haul passengers around? None of the improvements made to the ship diminish this role at all. It is still the only small ship that can equip luxury cabins. Many, of course, will point out that luxury passenger charters are not common, and it doesn't necessarily make much business sense to equip a luxury cabin. However, the Dolphin is still the leader in its class, even without the luxury cabin. It still has a great jump range, excellent thermal capabilities, and a decent-sized fuel scoop when equipped as a small passenger liner, easily taking on the many lucrative passenger jobs that are available in the bubble. In particular, sightseeing missions are its forte, largely a consequence of it being such a good explorer. These charters can be completed easily without visiting a station or planetary port, which reduces aggravation for both the commander and the passengers. All the previous attributes, excellent supercruise handling and decent normal space handling, go on to add to the Dolphin's strength in this regard. It is worth noting, though, that the Dolphin should not be taken into dangerous situations. Ferrying criminals or assassination targets around is something that's likely to result in a nasty and short trip by Remlock to the nearest station, not to mention unsatisfied customers and an insurance bill. The ship is not a good fighter. However, the supercruise handling does help the commander evade interdictions, so in some cases, coming face-to-face -face with an adversary can be avoided altogether. In conclusion, then, without a doubt we can say that the Dolphin is a ship that the Independent Pilots Federation member really ought to consider, both for its original purpose of passenger charter, but more so for exploration. You may be fantastically wealthy, and you may be able to bask in an imperial cutter, but on a long trip, the humble dolphin's charm and surprising versatility will really begin to grow on you. And finally, the thing that might just sway you into giving Saud Kruger's smallest and most adorable passenger liner a try, it goes squee when you hit the boost. Thank you for listening to issue 29 of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This issue featured articles written by Andrew Gaspar, M. Lehman, Ariri and Mac Winston and was edited by Adernis, Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Scott Cleverton, Kaizen, Poet Sparrow, Spidey007 and Aid Levice and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.